Hi. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm admiring right now how far away one of our college students, Jonathan, is walking back there. He was greeting people all the way over there, but he's sitting over here. So I'm, good job, Jonathan. So, good job. You're welcome. I hope spring break has been well. Good. Well, everyone, today we're going to have fun. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Joshua again. We are continuing our series. Last week we talked about the Israelites, for the first time in 440 years, entered the promised land as the people of God. And, and we talked about the, the good of that and, and what was happening, and also the, the bad of that, is that, as a lot of what the Lord was completing was good in completing his promises, but some of his promises were the, the promises that some people wouldn't make it in. And so we talked about that week, and we looked at this, this story of the Israelites entering the promised land and how the people in the promised land, the Canaanites and, and all the different people groups, when they heard how the Israelites crossed a flooded river on dry ground, they, their, their hearts melted. And, and so today we're going to look at the first three battles in the book of Joshua. Um, and, and the question we're going to answer is, who are we for? And, and as we start to look at this, I'm going to invite, we have a student, Hannah Pushparaj is going to come out. Hey, Hannah. And she is going to open us up with some scripture. Genesis 3, 1 through 10. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not truly die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Thank you, Hannah. So. We are in the book of Joshua today. Um, but, but before we jump into this passage, we need to do something. Um, we need to make sure that we all have the same definition of sin. Um, and, and, and to talk about that, um, I've always thought of sin as you do something God doesn't like or you break a commandment in the Bible. Um, and I've always thought of it very actively. But then there's the thought side, right? Because our, our, we can have sinful thoughts, and we can have sinful words. We can speak sinfully. We can also sin by not doing something just as much as we can sin by doing something. And so as we start today, I'm going to give you what is my favorite definition of sin that I've ever heard. It is also very challenging. So if you, if you don't get anything else out of today, really reflect on this. Sin at its core is an attempt to redefine good and evil on our own terms. When Eve saw the fruit, she's in a garden full of fruit that was good to eat. And she saw that one thing and she said, well, this looks good, even though God said it's not. 
And, and, and she coveted it because she, she desired it. She wanted to have it because the promise is if you, if you have this, you will be like God. And she said, it would be good for me to be like God. And so long before she takes it, the sin's already implanted in her head. And when she takes it, that is her saying, it is good for me to have this, not evil. And, and as you hear this, you may say, well, well, that's not always the case. Sometimes I sin and I know it's bad. But even when we sin, I, I don't think at our core we think we're evil. And, and so even when we do something wrong, we say, well, that's still better than what someone else might do. Um, but, but this idea is something we need to realize, that sin is redefining good and evil in our own terms. On top of that, when we attempt to redefine good and evil, we actively reject God's definition of both. If God is perfect and all-knowing and, and everything about him is, is perfect and he has all knowledge, he has, he has everything, he has all power, if he has a definition and we say, we need to clarify that definition, that's a bad start, right? Like if, we, if we're redefining what God has defined, we're, we're headed the wrong way. Finally, this is both on purpose and can be unintentional. And it's wicked regardless of motivation. If somebody uses their power to treat others in an unjust way, that's, that's sinful. And, and they're redefining good as I can exercise my power in this way. But that person being mistreated may in their mind say, if I ever get into power, I will kill them. Which is just as evil on its own. But the idea of when they're in power, what they do, they say is good. But if I was in power, I'd get to pick good and evil. It's still wrong. And, and what all of this builds towards, um, and I've, I've vetted this with a lot of people, because I'm about to say something that, that if I say it and you just leave, um, don't do that. Um, please, I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, the big idea we're going to look at today, because we're going to look at our definition of good and evil and, and our, our sin, and, and the, the application today starts with God is not on your side. God is not on my side. God is not on your side. If you hear this and say, that's terrible, God is on my side, you're redefining good and evil. We're, we're going to look at this in depth as we study the battle, battle of Jericho and then the next two battles. But I just, I want to get this out there. God is not on our side. That's the starting application of everything we're going to read. And it's going to be really clear as we go. And, and the other thing I want to tell you as we start is, um, I came in today, like when I found out I was going to preach on Jericho, I was super excited to bash on the veggie tales. Um, I define the veggie tales as evil, and the way the veggie tales twist the Bible, I'm not a fan of. If after today you show your children the Josh and the big wall, I don't know what you got from the sermon, but it wasn't good. Um, I just want to put that out there. And, and I joke about this, but I want to tell you, I start off talking about VeggieTales, um, and then I was thinking about every time I've heard the Battle of Jericho talked about. The framework of the Battle of Jericho has always been about, um, there are walls in our life. There are obstacles in our life. What is the Jericho in our life? And, and that is an idea of, I need God on my side to take care of that. And if we're looking at what this passage is about, the starting point of this passage is God is not on our side. So if our application is, how is God going to help me knock things down? We're in trouble. And so I want to start with all of that. I want to get this all out on the table because otherwise as I go, if I start saying it in the middle, you're going to be like, what did you say? God's not on my side? It's, it's intentional. God is not on our side. He's not on my side. He's not on your side. But at the end of today, I think you're going to come away encouraged. So let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you are not on our side, as goofy as that sounds to say. Lord, we thank you that you are perfect and you are all-knowing and that you love us and that, that in creating us, you desired that we could partner with you and we could be on your side. And I, I pray, Lord, that today you would open our eyes um, to areas of our life where we have redefined good and evil on our own terms and, and where we think that you must be on our side instead of asking, Lord, what does it look like to be on your side in this? I, I pray as we open up the text today that, that you would give us all clarity on who you are and clarity on who we are in light of that. And I, I pray that you would, your spirit would be speaking through me and to all of us and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the question today is, who are we for? Who are we for? And we're going to look at that in this big account. We're going to look at three battles. And so at the start of this, remember, Israel has just entered the promised land and they march right up a few miles away from Jericho. And then all the men get circumcised and they kind of slow down for like 10 plus days. But now the men are healed and it's time to get moving. And so Joshua was by Jericho and he lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? The, the very first question in this passage, Joshua sees this man with a weapon and he's like, are you on our side or the other side? And, and the question of who are we for, that's what Joshua is asking. Are you for us or for them? And the guy's response, he says, no. It's a weird response. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What he is saying is, I'm, these sides don't matter. I'm on the side of the Lord. And, and it's a very interesting thing because this guy's got a drawn sword. And if you see a man with a drawn sword in this day, you would, it's weird, first off, that Joshua walks up to him. Hey, excuse me. You know, like he's right outside an enemy city and he sees this one guy outside with a sword and he's wondering what the heck is going on. And, and, and so the guy says, I'm not on your side. I'm on the Lord's side. And, and Joshua fell on his face and he worshiped him. And he said, what does my servant, or what does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this is an echo back to when Moses was in front of the burning bush. Um, God told him, there, take off your sandals and you're standing on holy ground. But what's interesting here is Joshua is standing right outside of Jericho. Right outside of a, a, a pagan city that the Israelites are thinking, we gotta, we gotta wipe this city out. And, and Joshua is standing right outside and God calls this ground holy. Because he's there. And, and the next verse gives us a little insight into Jericho. Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went in, and not, or none went out, and none came in. Now, a, a quick side note. Um, archaeologists do a lot of really cool things with the book of Joshua, and they can, they can prove how big the walls of Jericho were and all of these different things. Do you know who does not care about that? God. And the reason we know God does not care about it is because the walls are mentioned two total times in this story. They're never described. The, the kingdom, the army inside of Jericho is never described. The battle we're about to witness is not a battle of, of this mighty army that the Israelites are going to go before. It's, it's a city that the Lord is going to topple. And it does not matter what the city looks like or else the Bible would have mentioned. And you may say, well, Matt, um, the people of that day would have known about it. And I will tell you, and I'm going to spoil the whole story of Jericho right now, 
they turned the city into rubble and they never rebuilt it in their day. And so if they would have referenced it in the next generation, been like Jericho, the people, the, the, the next generation would have been like, oh, well, I know how big that is because I saw the rubble. They wouldn't have ever gone and looked at it. And so the point here, doesn't matter what Jericho looks like. Doesn't matter how big Jericho is. What matters here is whose side are you on? And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And, and so Joshua takes that command the Lord gives him, and he tells all the people, hey, men of war, we're going to get up early in the morning tomorrow, and we're going to march around this city one time with the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle of us. Okay? And so just as Joshua commanded, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, Before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. So God gave them a command, and they followed it. And Joshua said to the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you, then you shall shout. So church, the the image here. Um, a lot of people, when they, when they study this passage and when they talk about this passage, they, t- they talk about this idea of, okay, so the Jericho people are firing arrows down at them and, you know, like throwing things at them and they're ready for, for their defense. But, but that is not what's happening. There are hundreds of thousands of Israelite armed men walking around this city in silence. And if I'm a person in Jericho, I'm not like, oh, maybe I can take one of them out. Because as soon as you take one out, they, they surround the whole city. Probably not a good battle strategy to encourage them to attack you. Wait, they've come at us and they're not attacking? Let's wait and see what happens. The, the, the people marching around are quiet. And, and there's no battle. There's None of the Israelites are in danger right now. They're just walking around this city. And what's really interesting in the imagery, the, the trumpet blowing, where else we have seen that in the Bible is a signal to come to us. And, and so when we read this battle of Jericho, one of the really interesting things that I think we can see in the battle is even though God says you're going to wipe out all these people when you enter, the way God says that, the wiping out of the people is not going to be you kill all of them. You're going to kill a lot of them. We're going to look at that. We'll talk about that later. But, but the one other thing as they, as they go in and as they're wiping out these people, anyone who says, I will give up on my God, I will come over to your God, if they will be for the Lord, they're going to be brought in. And so the walking around for six days, I can't help but believe that what God is doing here is for six days, the horn is blowing saying, hey, Jericho, just open up. Like, just, just our God is stronger than your God. You know that. Your hearts are melted with fear. Because what the people in Jericho are doing right now, they're not defending. They might be preparing defenses, but they're, they're probably praying to their other gods. And depending on who they worshipped, which is not mentioned in the Bible, depending on who they worshipped, there's a good chance that there was some type of human sacrifice happening. And depending on who they worshipped, that might have been a, a very young sacrifice. Many of the Canaanite gods were gods that you, or specific ones, were gods that, of power that you would have sacrificed infants to, the innocent. And so what's happening inside the city is they're crying out to their gods, while the god outside is saying, Come join me! Come join me. 
And so that happens for six days. So they, they go about the camp once, or they go about the city once, and they do it for six days. And then finally, on the seventh day, they rose early at dawn, and they marched around the city seven times. It was only that day that they marched around the city seven times. They followed the Lord's instructions exactly as he said. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Now, I got to pause for a moment. We've seen Rahab's name. Rich talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, At this point in the book of Joshua, we have seen two names of living people. Joshua and Rahab. In the middle of the story of the death or of the destruction of Jericho, before they show the destruction of Jericho, the author wants you to remember that not everyone's going to be killed here because Rahab turned to the Lord. In fact, what it says when the spies, when the spies go into her house and she hides them, um, what, what it says is she says, I know the Lord has given you this land. And she's essentially saying, your, your God has the power over this land, not our God. I want to be on your God's side. And, and so in this moment, even as we're about to see destruction, in, before, before they shout, Joshua reminds us that, that Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her shall live. But you, keep yourselves, this is to Israel now, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So Israel is going to take out like 30 plus kingdoms when they enter Canaan because there's all these little kingdoms and Jericho is just one of them. And this is the first one and there's this expression in the Bible, it's first fruits. And what's happening here is God says, when you take out this first city, all of the things of value are going to go into my temple. Just this one Everywhere else you go, you can take it. But just this one is going to go into my temple. And, and the idea here, I, Jess and I, when we tithe, we at the start of the year, we calculate out what we're going to earn and all these different things. And before we include taxes, before we include anything else, we give the Lord the first fruits. And we, 10% of our income, gross income, goes in, gross or net, I don't know, whichever one is the non-tax shoot. I should have looked that up. But whichever one is the, it's gross, I think. Um, uh, whichever one, we, we give the Lord that money before we even look at our taxes or how anything is going to be because we say, Lord, this 10% is yours. It is not ours. We recognize this all comes from you and you gave us 90%, not you took 10% from us. And so as they enter Jericho, this is what they're doing essentially is they're not taking any of that. They're giving all of that to the Lord. So as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. They captured the city. They devoted all of this, all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went and brought out Rahab and all of her family, and they they brought all of them and put them outside the camp of Israel. Now it says outside the camp of Israel because remember last week we talked about circumcision, and to be in the camp of Israel you had to be pure with the Lord, or you you had to be clean. And these, these people at this point in time would not have been clean, although we find out if we go 
uh, I'll, I'll get there. Um, we'll find out something in a minute. And, and so the, the city they burned with fire and everything else and only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. It looks like they have obeyed all of God's commands perfectly. And then again, Rahab comes up. Her name has come up five times now in the first six chapters of Joshua. The only name besides Joshua of a living Israelite is a Canaanite prostitute. And and her name is brought up in her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. So they were brought outside the camp, but then they were brought into the people. Last week we talked about how with the Passover, you become an Israelite when you do the Passover, essentially. That's like the path to citizenship. And so what we see here is the Passover was like 10 days ago. So it's going to be another year now. But, but they're assimilating in and joining in with the people. So even in the story of destruction, God makes sure to slow down this story to make sure we see that not everyone was destroyed. The people who turned to God, Rahab, who wanted to be on the Lord's side, is saved. Who are we for? So the, land was jo- uh, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. That's the last verse. Right before this, Joshua places a curse on Jericho and it's a very common Old Testament thing, when you destroy a city, you say, let this city never be rebuilt if it's rebuilt at the cost of the firstborn and the youngest. And then later on, we see someone did that because we know Jericho is standing in the days of Jesus. And so that's later on in the Bible. But at the end of all this, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. And this is normally where we stop the story. Um, but uh, so there's this thing called, called tension or, or, or drama. And when you read a story, you, you need to read the story thinking about that. And has there really been any tension here? No. no I, I probably shouldn't ask rhetorical questions when I'm preaching. If I was in the back, that would make, the kids would respond, or I'd stare at them awkwardly. Um, but, but this is normally where we stop the story, but there isn't a story yet. And also, if we stop the story here, there's a problem, because the story would be, it'd be okay to stop here if it was over. But a big claim that we just saw is that the people devoted all the things to the Lord and they gave all the stuff to the treasury, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, third name of a living person we see in the book of Joshua. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, I bet his relatives are thrilled that they mention all those names, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So just as they had done with Jericho, they now do with the next place. And so they go and they return and say, don't have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. Now, church, you may be reading this and you may say, why hasn't Joshua asked the Lord? Because what happens is Joshua sends three thousand men. Um, and you may wonder why Joshua has not sent the Lord. But, but the reason Joshua is not talking to the Lord about this is because when they enter, the Lord gives them the commands and says, this land is yours to take. And so Joshua is acting in faith, not knowing that someone in the congregation of Israel has sinned. And, and, and a big idea, and we're going to look at this more and more, a big idea of this sin. You may think that sin in your life is individual and does not affect other people. And that is wrong. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that is wrong. When we sin, and when we redefine good and evil in our own terms, it affects the whole people. Because it's when we start to do that, and when others start to do that, that we start to lose the image of who we are and what we're supposed to be for. 
And, and so we, we come to this moment, and, and 3,000 men are sent up from the people, and they, they go up for battle, and they wind up fleeing before the men of Ai. They just killed all the people of Jericho and destroyed this city by just marching around it, and not, no one died in this battle, as far as we know. Um, but, but in this story, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as she- Shebarim and struck them at the descent. Now, this number 36... In the entire book of Joshua, they take a ton of land. And there are 36 recorded deaths in battle in the book of Joshua. And they're all right here. Because of Achan's sin, 36 men die. And, and we, can, we can say, okay, well, Matt, they, they fought a lot of other battles, and so surely other men died, but we don't get that anywhere in the book of Joshua. In fact, only, we only know for sure of like three to five other people. Joshua dies at the end, um, spoiler, um, and, and Eleazar or Phineas, whatever the next priest is, um, he passes away as well, but they pass away of old age. And then Achan dies, which we're about to see. But 36 men die because of Achan's sin, because of his sin where he took something. And the hearts of the people melted. This is the people of Israel. Now, when they entered the promised land, when, they, when the spies talked to Rahab, she says, our hearts have melted because of what we heard you do in the wilderness. When the kings heard that the Israelites crossed the Jordan, the flooded river, when they heard they crossed it and now they're in the promised land, the hearts of all the kings melted. And now the hearts of the people melt. And they become as water. And Joshua, he tears his clothing and he fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads there in mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, what's, what's really interesting in this story, um, I've been wrestling with this all week. Because our question is, who are we for? And right at the start, I said, God's not on your side. God is not on your side. What Joshua is saying to God is, I thought you were on our side! Joshua is saying, Lord, you brought us in here. Like, like he's basically saying the same thing some Israelites said earlier about maybe we should have just gone in the wilderness. And you may say, well, Joshua is using a rhetoric technique um, to, to try and get God to respond. And maybe that's what he's doing. But his, his thing is, God, you're supposed to lead us to victory in all of these battles. I thought you were for us. And God's response is very clear. And this is why I think that, that Joshua is saying, God, why aren't you on our side um, in the question of who are we for, God responds to Joshua and says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. No, God doesn't say Achan has sinned. He says Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. When we stopped the battle of Jericho at the walls fell and Joshua was exalted, we miss out on the fact that the, even though the walls fell, they didn't really do what they were supposed to do. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Of course they cannot, because they want their own side. They turn their backs before their enemies, because they, will, they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God says, You're, we're, we're not on the same page anymore because of this sin. Get up! He says it again, and it's like he's yelling at Joshua, Get up! Stop this mourning! 
Make it right. Consecrate the people and say, tomorrow, consecrate, yourself, or consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. God goes on to tell Joshua, you're going to go clan, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, man by man. And what Joshua does the next morning is Joshua wakes up and he starts off. And we don't know how they did this in this story. Perhaps they had a bag with a white stone and a black stone. And for each tribe came up, Simeon, Le- or Reuben would have been first, sorry. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and they, it would have kept being one of the stones. And then finally, when they got to Judah the other stone. And so Joshua had been like, all right, men of Judah, come forward. And, and so then, then the Zerah, Zerahite clan was taken, which are all the descendants of Zerah. And then Zabdi was taken. And eventually Joshua keeps doing this. The whole congregation of Israel is watching. And the, the, Joshua keeps doing this until he's standing in front of Achan. And Joshua says to him, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. When the woman saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye and saw it could make her like God, she coveted it and she took it. That's the first sin in the land God gave to humanity. And what is the first sin here? The first sin committed in the promised land is the exact same thing. Achan looks and says, look at all that plunder. Look at all that. It'd be good if I took a bit. No one will notice. Achan redefines good and evil And Israel faces their only real defeat in the book of Joshua because of one man's sin. And remember, sin at its core is an attempt to redefine good and evil in our own terms. When we attempt to redefine good and evil, we actively reject God's definition of both. This is both on purpose and unintentional, and it's wicked regardless of our motivation. In the question of who are we for, we now see a contrast, because Achan's name has come up five times, just like Rahab's name came up five times. And, And Rahab hid spies for the Lord. Achan hid something from the Lord. Joshua said to Achan, what have you hid or hide nothing from me? And so here you see Rahab who is for the Lord and now you see Achan who is not. And so Joshua sent messengers. They run to the tent. They find the silver and everything else and they took it out and they lay it before the Lord And then Joshua and all Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tents. Now, that list there is a very intentional list. What that list is echoing is, do you know what they did in Jericho? They they wiped out the the sons and daughters and oxen and donkeys and sheep and tent or, or city, but it was their dwelling, all of it. Achan in this moment is taken out of the camp and to this valley of Achor, he and his whole family. And you may wonder why his family, but they live in a tent. If your dad came in in the middle of the night and was, and not the middle of the night, after the greatest victory and while everyone else is out celebrating, your dad's like, help me dig a hole. And then the next, a few days later, you hear about this defeat, and then you hear everyone's going to stand there. Achan, Achan never really confesses. Achan is caught. 
There's a difference. Achan didn't repent. Achan didn't come up to Joshua and say, it is my fault for what has happened. Achan's children and his family, I'm assuming his wife too, um, his whole family, they didn't come up to Joshua and say, look, we know it was him. They all tried to cover that sin together. They tried to say, it'll be good as long as we don't get caught. It's not that evil. And, and so what happens is Joshua says to them, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. Because Joshua's understanding at this point that, that it's not about, will, will, I, will the Lord be on my side? It's about, will I be on the Lord's side? He finally sees that at this point in the story. And, and all Israel stoned Achan and his family with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones the same way that it happened in Jericho. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Now, this seems like a better place to end the story, right? We've now gone full circle, Um, except the Lord is not done. Um, And this is going to get really cool. I'm, I'm really excited about this part, because at the start of the story, you have Rahab who hid spies, and then, then you have this, this place where, where Achan hides from the Lord, and now we're going to see what the Lord can do. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. You've just experienced defeat, but don't worry about it now that you're right with me and now that you're back on my side. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land, just like Jericho. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. If Achan could have just waited, the rest of the promised land was theirs if they just gave to the Lord what was his. And the Lord says, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So hiding was done by Rahab. Hiding is done by Achan. And now the Lord says, now I'm going to get involved and we're going to hide something else. Hide about 30,000 men behind this city. And so what was done for good and done for evil, the now, now the Lord does for good. And, and Joshua and, and all Israel, they pretend to be beaten before the people of Ai. The, the battle plan is, all right, remember what happened when we got our butts kicked? When we walked up here and then we had to run away and 36 of us dies? We're going to make it look like we're trying the same strategy again. We're going to look like idiots. And the people of Ai have now called some of their allies the men of Bethel. And now together these men are going to charge out after them. And what was done the first time, and what the Lord used to stop evil, the Lord is now going to redeem. And as they run, all the people in the city, they see them running. And just like the last time, they pursue them again. And they leave the city empty because they say, we beat them once, we're going to beat them again, let's chase them down this time. And, and not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out a javelin, that's like a mini spear type thing, um, or a big spear, I don't know, um, that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the, in the ambush arose quick out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set it on fire. So what we saw in defeat when the people were not right with God, the Lord now uses that exact same thing for good. So where sin occurred, the Lord, once the people were back on his side, the Lord worked it for good. But it's important to note that the people were on the Lord's side this time. And, and all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000. All the people of Ai, 
I want to pause here for a moment because this is, if there is anything in the Bible that people struggle with, it's, it's these stories of how can this God be so hateful? But, but what's happening in these stories is not just about the people being killed, and we're going to see that in a moment, but, but what's happening in the stories, um, these people of Ai and the people of Jericho and the people of Bethel, they would have worshipped other gods. And what is happening in this story is these people are saying, our God beat their God. And they're going to fight to the last to, to try, and, and they worship their God, and they're not going to back away for it. And so the Lord says, if they're not going to back away, I don't want this in the promised land anymore. I don't want the infant sacrifices. I don't want the worshiping of, of these idols and these demons and these wicked things. And so if the people are unwilling to change from that, they need to go. It is judgment, but it's judgment that's been brewing for 440 years in the promised land. And, and so Joshua, he does not draw back his hand from which he had stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. The first time they thought they had done everything right, and then it turned out Achan hadn't done it. This time Joshua's standing there probably a really long time. All right, are they all gone? Are they all gone? He's making sure that they do it right this time. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. The Lord gives them what he promises to give them. And the story does not end here. There's, there's one more part of the story. So at, at this time, Joshua builds an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Mount Ebal. And this place is like a natural amphitheater. There's Mount Ebal on one side and another mountain on the other. And Joshua builds a, an altar. And, and it's something that Moses actually in Deuteronomy said, hey, when you guys enter the promised land, make sure when you hit this point, you stop and you offer a burnt offering and, and a peace offering to the Lord. And so Joshua follows this and the people follow this and they are completely obedient. And, and where this, uh, there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And so all the people stand there while Joshua writes out the whole book of Deuteronomy. It sounds really awkward. Um, if we tried to do it today, I don't know, we'd have to like time lapse it. Um, it would take a really long time uh, to write out the book of Deuteronomy, but, but the people are resolute in being on the side of the Lord. And, and all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in the front of Mount Gerizim and half of them on the front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And there's a word here, sojourner. Um, this word is so important. The word sojourner in, in, in this context would have been people that decided, I want to join up with Israel. And where are they mentioned? And it says all Israel, and then the first thing it mentions are the sojourners. In the midst of Israel in their battles and wiping out these people and beginning the process of taking over the promised land, they're also inviting all the people that say, I want to be on the side of the Lord to join them. And so it's not just Israelites standing around on the mountains. It's Rahab and her family and it's other people who would have said, I, I want to be on the side of that Lord. God's conquest of the promised land is not just about wiping people out, but it's about, and the wiping out is about people that will not come to me cannot be here anymore. People who will come to me can be here, and they're mentioned first. You would expect for them to be mentioned last, and by the way, they are mentioned last, 
But the fact that they're mentioned first and last should draw our attention to the fact that da-ding, 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 this is really important that they're mentioned here. Because as the Israelites conquer the land, it's not us versus them. It's not us, the Israelites, versus the Canaanites and the people of Jericho. And we need to live or they need to, or they need to die or we need to die, one or the other. It's who is going to be on the side of the Lord. And so you've got a prostitute who hides people on behalf of the Lord and she's on the Lord's side. You've, you've got this Israelite, the first Israelite name besides Joshua and he's not on the Lord's side, he's on his own side. And he's hopeful that the Lord's so busy he doesn't notice. And now you've got the people of Israel and all of the people who have joined them standing on the mountainside, renewing the covenant with the Lord, saying, this is our God, we are for the Lord. The, at the end of today, there, there are two things we need to ask ourselves. And, and the, fir- we're, the question we're answering is, who are we for? And, and the first thing we need to think about is, if I am for the Lord, it means that my allegiance is to his side and not my own. And what that means is that for Joshua, when, when they lost that battle, Joshua was like, Lord, you, why aren't you on our side? Instead of, Lord, what are you doing here and what do we need to learn from it? Joshua in that moment had an entitlement and God had to yell at him, get up, Joshua, stop mourning, make it right. And, and the, the, the point of this is that if we want to be those who are for the Lord, it means that our reaction when we get bad news, when we get hard news, when, when you see your car check engine light on this week and your wipers don't go down already and your heater doesn't properly work and you've been putting off all of these changes because you're like, ah, we just got to get to summer and it'll get better. I can roll the windows down. When, when all of those things come up and then the check engine light goes off, or goes on, not off, um, and, and you all of a sudden say, Lord, come on. Like, like is that really the right reaction? Because if I'm for the Lord, it's one thing. If, if I think the Lord should be for me, I think the Lord should fix my car. But that's not the point of this. The, the point of this is if I am for the Lord, then in these moments I'm looking at, Lord, what are you going to do for this, through this? How are you going to use me in this? And, and Lord, what is it you would have me do? What is your definition of good and evil? The next part of this is we, we need, if I am for the Lord, it means I need to submit to his definition of good and evil. And church, this is easier said than done. Because we all have scripts in our heads from childhood and we all have things in our lives. The way we see the world is so bent by sin that on our own we cannot help to live by God's definition of good and evil. There have been some really evil things done that were rationalized by this, right? And it's, it's true. And, and the thing is, is the problem is, is when people say God is on my side, then they can use this however they want. When they say I'm on the side of the Lord, then they need to start seeking this out and they need, to, they need to spend time submitting to his definition of good and evil. And what that looks like for us is first off, it's community, it's talking to others. It's also, it's, it's taking things to the Lord. It's relying on the Holy Spirit, but it's relying on the Holy Spirit in community and recognizing that on our own, we are going to warp good and evil to fit our own intentions. That's what we do. And so as we leave today, I hope you come away. I hope when you leave today, if someone asks you what you learned today, you don't say, God's not on my side. But instead, it's true though. So I mean, if you remember it, good job. God is not on our side, but God says, be on my side. Who are we for? Let's be those people who are for the Lord. Let's recognize that our sin, when we live in our sin and when we say it's good enough, 
or it's not that evil, or, or whatever we do. When we do that, we compromise this body. And when we do that, we, we take away our ability to live the way the Lord would have us live. We, we damage our ability to enter into the places he wants us to go. And, and he's not phased. The, the Lord, if we're for the Lord, it's going well. If we're not for the Lord, he's, he's not like, darn, I'm, I'm in trouble. Um, he's not. But, but the, the point here is that as, as we leave today, I would encourage you, there's, there's just so much that we can take from this if, if we submit to the Lord, if we say, I want to be on his side instead of I want to figure out why he's not on my side enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord God, we thank you that you are so good. We, we thank you that your way is perfect, that your definition of good and evil is perfect. And we thank you that, that in the midst of everything we're talking about today, even though we are not for you the way we should be, even when we try to be, we thank you that you allow us to align ourselves with you. We thank you that through your son, you've given us a way to be on your side, to be a part of your kingdom, to be part of your work. And and we pray as we leave here today that that we would just repent from where we allow our definition of good and evil to replace yours. We we pray as we leave today that that you would be working in our lives and, and that you would be working in a way that we would see that we are for you, not that you are for us. We pray we would leave here today just, just with a clear understanding of what it looks like to be people who are for you. And where we are not, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to it, you would reveal it to us, and you would help us to just move away from that so we can be a people who are more and more for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.